0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Congolese President Chitsukedi clocks more than 100 days in office. Has he done enough to prove that he's his own man? Mauritania President Aziz is stepping down, marking the first peaceful transition of power in its history. What can we expect from the new government? Plus, we talk about coup d'etats in Africa. Is it time to rethink the playbook? So whether you have a history with the continent, or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa.
1: The performance of President Felix Gisicchetti is up for scrutiny, as he notched up his first 100 days in office He has yet to name a prime minister and cabinet, but he has made good on his promise to release political prisoners in the country.
0: It has been several months since Felix Chitsukedi was sworn in as the president of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but his administration is moving at a glacial pace. At least at the time of this recording in mid-May, Chitsukedi has not named a prime minister or a cabinet. And the question is, when will the standoff between Chitsukedi and his predecessor, Joseph Kabila, finally end, or at least how will it end? Joining me to discuss President Shitsukedi's first 100 days in office is Nanihal Singh, a professor at the Naval War College and author of Seizing Power, the Strategic Logic of Military Coups. Maxiolan, a Nigerian historian and author of several books on the Nigerian military, including the upcoming Nigeria's Soldiers of Fortune, the Abacha and Abasanjo Years, that will be published in July, and Alexis Arif, an Africa specialist at the Congressional Research Service. Alexis, you're going to have to do some heavy lifting here. Okay, update us on where we are in the DRC since Chittsicati's election. And I would just note that Invemba Diziolere, one of our associates, had written a commentary. He said that Chittsicati had to do three things. Acknowledge some of the problems with his election win, show he's his own man and distance himself from Kabila, and chart an economic course and public policy that would restore rule of law, reassure investors, dismantle corrupt networks, etc. How are we doing?
2: Well, what we've seen is sort of continued speculation about the nature of Chissaketi's grand bargain, if there was one, with Kabila, and over who really is in charge, as you as you alluded to. Um, since he was inaugurated in January, there have been indirect elections for Senate and for the Senate and governors, um, and what we've seen is, as with the parliamentary elections. The FCC coalition of the former president, Joseph Kabila, has expanded and demonstrated its continuing weight in in Congolese politics. Um, The recent elections of the leadership of the National Assembly sort of confirms this trend. Janine Mabunda, who uh, has been elected head of the Assembly, um, is from Kabila's PPRD party. Um, which is is kind of extraordinary, all of these developments, given that uh represented in some ways a historic win for the opposition. His UDPS party has seen very few, if any, real gains. Um, and as you said, there's still no cabinet as of mid-May. In the meantime, amid this kind of political paralysis over choosing a cabinet, which is thought to uh, be a likely sign of how the relationship uh, between Shisekedi and Kabila will work in practice, there are all of these other challenges that are mounting in the background. Obviously, none of the underlying problems in, in DRC's security economy or governance have been addressed. And meanwhile, we see um, you know these troubling developments in the east, uh, the continuing spiraling Ebola, Outbreak, And then we also saw the Islamic State claim responsibility for this small attack against Congolese security forces in eastern Congo, seeming to sort of solidify notional linkages between a small um, militia group known as the ADF and the Islamic State. We don't really know what that means in practice, but that's obviously a, a problematic trend that no one's really in a position to address given uncertainty about who controls what.
0: Right. This paralysis is preventing them if they were capable of responding to these problems, if they had the will for it. And I do want to talk a little bit about this tug of war. I've often said, including on the podcast, that I think ultimately Chitsukedi will find a way uh, to establish himself. I know I'm still in the minority. I'm sticking to my story, but it's difficult to thread this needle. Nanihala, Max, I know you guys are not Congolese experts per se, but I think you both have expertise on intergroup dynamics and how to think about them. Is there any sort of insights that maybe you can share about how these two leaders and the networks around them navigate this power puzzle? Maybe Max, you want to go first?
1: Sure. Maybe I won't speak to Congo specifically, but I'll speak to scenarios in other parts of Africa that are very, very similar to what Congo is experiencing at the moment. And based on the summary that Alexis has given, for which many thanks, um, it it sounds like what's happening in the DRC is um, not unique and has been seen. Elsewhere in Africa, when we've seen long-standing presidents leave power, um, people often advocate and expect that they're going to do radical spring cleaning. But what we've actually seen elsewhere is that they do something akin to a a bit of minor dusting rather than spring cleaning. And I'll use two examples from um, Nigeria. When um, President Yaradua succeeded a very, very powerful President Obasanjo in 2007, he took three months to appoint a cabinet. Then in 2015, when um, President Buhari took power after the previous government had been in power for 16 years, he took even longer six months to appoint a cabinet. So the question is what were they doing? during those long months of paralysis similar to what the DRC is going through. So when we see this kind of dynamic there's always um, pressure on the successor to kind of walk a tightrope between doing just enough to distance themselves from their predecessor to deflect criticisms that they're a puppet but also maintaining enough contact with that predecessor so that they don't inadvertently trigger conflict with the outgoing regime. So um, I would say that the DRC is playing out a a very familiar scenario that we've seen in other parts of Africa.
3: One of the things that's striking me here is the extent to which we are seeing something that's different, which is we're seeing two sons, right? And I'm remembering what happened when Joseph Kabila himself came to power. I was a graduate student at Harvard. I saw him come and give a speech, and he was at that point the bright-eyed reformer, and he had to distance himself both from his father, but from his father's backers, and everyone assumed that he would be merely a figurehead. Yeah, absolutely. And so, what you have here are the two sons um and that generates this dynamic because the coalitions precede them. These are not coalitions that they assembled themselves. It's coalitions they inherit, which is a little bit trickier when it comes to negotiating And that Tshikori not only has to deal with Kabila, he also has to deal with all of his own backers. Yeah, we don't who, talk about that as much. It's a great point. Who may treat him with a lot of respect, but in DRC, you, you're seeing the beginnings of another generation there's still not a young generation but you know there's still not the the 20 and 30 year olds who represent over half the population and who are in the streets but they're younger than the people who've been sitting in the state house up till now
2: yeah i mean i think it's it's an interesting case study because we talk a lot about the need for generational renewal elsewhere in africa and to me drc is an is a reminder that it's not a panacea um, that just having younger a younger political class on on average and having a younger president actually doesn't in and of itself uh, get rid of corrupt networks or entrenched patronage systems or the kind of deep-seated governance problems that we see throughout, especially Central Africa. I would say that, you know, in terms of uh, inheriting a coalition, I think Kabila really did build his own current coalition. He did have to undergo the sort of distancing and rebuilding that Naanahal Referred to, but uh, but today the PPRD and the FCC even it's more so. It really mm-hmm. is his party, and if not, in, in fact to the point where it's not really clear what what the FCC is other than a vehicle for political support to Kabila. Um, so that that is kind of the the strange aspect of the current strange bedfellows uh, partnership between Kabila and Chisiketi that's emerging is that the former president actually has a much more to date anyway, unified and strong, both patronage and formal political coalition, than Cicicchetti's UDPS, which is riven with internal divisions, which has a history of defections um, and co-option, and which was, as has already been mentioned, which was actually lukewarm at best about even anointing Felix Chisichetti as its, as its standard bearer. To go back to Mvemba's points about what Felix needs to do that, that Judd mentioned at the top, Obviously, we've seen that Felix Cicicchetti has not been willing to acknowledge any problems with his electoral yeah. win. the cloud that continues to hang over his head, at least in the international community in some parts, um, over the legitimacy of whether he won the most votes or not, you know, remains and is not going to go anywhere. And he, he, it's perilous for him to acknowledge it publicly. But I think when we look at DRC, we have to think less about what it means for Felix Cicchetti to succeed than what it means for the Congolese who voted overwhelmingly for opposition candidates and what they expected to see out of this election. So to the extent that many Congolese seem to have accepted Chisiquetti's win and even been cheered by it, even if they didn't vote for him, the question is, what did they intend by voting for someone other than Kabila's intended candidate? So it's not just about whether Felix and you know demonstrates that he's his own man. It's about whether he actually does things right. that uh, that respond to that demand for new leadership.
3: Former General Ould Abdelaziz took the oath of office as Mauritania's new civilian president a year after taking power in a military coup.
0: After this election, I hope that voting will be normal. You know, it's not often that you get to talk about Mauritania here on our show, certainly even in Washington, D.C., but there is a presidential election on the 22nd of June. Mauritania is a fascinating place. President Aziz took power in a coup, partly the reason why I've asked Max and Nani Hall to join us, because they're experts on coup d'etats. And after this coup in 2008, he is stepping down. This has never happened in Mauritania. that A leader has stepped down from power and is going to do this transfer to, well, he's got a Dauphin that he's appointed. It's remarkable to think about what this means for the Memoriatanian state. So Alexis, there's really one name that's out there for who's going to be the next president of Mauritania. Can you tell us a little about him?
2: So Mohamed Oul-Gazwani is uh, President Abdelaziz's chosen successor, uh, at least by all appearances. President Abdelaziz did endorse him formally uh, earlier this year. He has secured the nomination from the ruling UPR party. Even before that kind of elevation as Abdelaziz's dauphin, Abdelaziz seemed to be promoting Oul-Gazwani from inside. So he elevated him from being the chief of staff of the military to being the minister of defense. Uh, in late 2018 um and uh Ghazwani is largely seen as a close uh partner and ally of Abdulaziz so someone who has been selected and sort of groomed to continue the current um general s- set of platforms uh through which Abdulaziz has approached the presidency and sort of a regime continuity in some ways
0: I think that's the conventional wisdom right, right? but it may be useful in this conversation to think through any like low probability, high impact. I mean, whether it's the counterterrorism cooperation with international players, whether it's issues around trafficking persons and the vestiges of slavery, freedom of press, which is really problematic in Mauritania. Can we imagine a change?
2: So I think Mauritania is really interesting because there was this brief opening mm-hmm. um uh, after the last coup in 2005, you know, there was a transitional government, then there were actually free and fair elections in, and uh, uh, a sort of reform-minded, if still part of the elite, uh, president took office in 2007, um, uh, President Abdelahi, and he actually tried to open up some of these very sensitive issues um, in Mauritania's history and, and present, uh, things like... Um, Slavery, cracking down on slavery, accountability for racially based pogroms um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, And uh, that was welcomed and heralded by some members of Mauritanian society, but it was actually very controversial, even among some political opposition uh, segments. And ultimately, when he tried to um, actually move against Abdulaziz at the time in in the military, uh, that was what prompted Abdulaziz's coup. uh, that was the proximate cause of the coup, but really it was also that there was sort of a rebellion um, among Mauritania's sort of racially and, and ethnically uh, segmented elite against what Abdullahi was was trying to do. So I think that is a wild card in Mauritanian politics, but uh, that's precisely presumably why Abdulaziz felt that he needed somebody who he was very comfortable with um, you know, succeeding him and that this is by all – appearance is a very carefully vetted um, choice. Um, I think you mentioned counterterrorism. The other interesting thing about Mauritania is that this is a country that was one of the most prominent initial targets of uh, the group that eventually came to be known as al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb um, when it first sort of moved south out of Algeria in the mid-2000s. And yet, even as we've seen AQIM and the larger Mali-based network that AQIM is now part of expand at this rapid pace in other countries in the region, the exact opposite trend is the case in Mauritania, with no major attacks in recent years, um, very little uh, activity that's discernible from, from open reporting. Um, so that is also a wild card. I mean, it, you know, one of Abdulaziz's arguable successes has been delivering that greater security, but... Uh, how he's done that is 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 a question. Um, it's not fully clear. So whether someone else can continue that track record, and whether doing so requires you know certain kinds of concessions or back channel negotiations, perhaps with terrorist actors, um, whether that's setting Mauritania up for further instability in the future is is a question as well.
0: Mauritania, I want to bring Max and Nani Hall in because Mauritania has had a lot of coups in its history, six. Ould um, uh, Guaz, uh, Guazani participated in the last two of them and you know Mauritanians have to navigate this really Byzantine racial and caste and ethnic politics not only between Bidan, also known as the White Moors the haratine Black Moors and the Afro-Mauritanians but rivalries within the Bidon community so uh, what do you guys think about uh, you know the ways in which the civil mill relationship could evolve in Mauritania do you wanna go first,
1: Max? Happy to do so, and um, just looking at Mauritania, three things really, really um, interest me about Mauritania and what's happening at the moment. In other areas of the world where we see long-reigning incumbents like um, Abdulaziz leave power, they usually seek protection or retribution from their successors by putting in place some kind of self-protection mechanisms. Usually it might be something procedural like amnesty provisions in law or in the constitution. Sometimes we see people do what Abdulaziz did, is that um, they appoint a trusted heir apparent um, who is assumed will just be a continuation of the old regime. But what's really fascinating about currently um, the relationship between Abdulaziz and Ghazwani is that um, for the last decade, um, what's he been doing? During that time, he's been the chief of army staff and the minister of defence. And like Alexis mentioned, she said that Mauritania has made some um, gains against counter um, um, counterinsurgency gains against insurgents so the question I have is who do we give credit for those security gains to is it to um, the current president or is it actually to the guy who was commanding the security forces so I'm really interested to find out whether because he's been in command of the security forces for the past decade Ghazwani actually has a tighter grip and a tighter control of the military than we might um, currently be envisaging.
3: That was uh, the point I was going to make, is that normally when you have uh, an outgoing incumbent, perhaps trying to influence things from behind the scenes, and you've got somebody new coming in who's elected, they are often a civilian. But in this case, it is former military, former defense minister, somebody who may have enough extensive ties within the security apparatus to be a presence in their own right. And the issue is that while sometimes one generation and the next share all of the same uh, agenda, very often they don't. And so you can't always assume that you will have 100% agreement. And certainly over time, you will see a moving apart. The one thing I will say is that um, while Mauritania has very tricky ethnicity, and I'm not a Mauritanianist at all, what I would like to know more about is the non-ethnic factors as well. Yeah. From the outside, what we tend to see are ethnicity, but particularly in in any situation where you've had someone in power for a while, where there's a lot more rich context, um, we tend to ignore the factors that we can't see from a distance. And looking for our keys under the light is a mistake. I, I understand the instinct for legibility. It simplifies our lives. And decision-makers in D.C. in particular want to go for familiar tropes. I mean, I hope our listeners
0: have heard this little segment and realize they should learn more about Mauritania, that we have a lot to learn about Mauritania, but an incredibly fascinating place. I can't tell you how excited I am to have... Two experts here to discuss is free. Actually, Nanihal, obviously, your work uh, is is incredible. I highly recommend it. It provides a new framework to think about coups. Max, I've read your books over and over again. I can't wait for the next part of the series. It really deepened my understanding of coups in the history, of, political history of Nigeria. And then Alexis, you're often called on the carpet to help explain coups in Mali and Guinea and Burkina, maybe Niger. So. I want to start with my favorite, everyone's favorite uh, coup trope, which is a group of military officers seize the radio station. They shut down the airport and the country's borders. Nanhal, I thought you have such a cogent way to explain why these actions, particularly the radio broadcasts, are so important for a successful coup. Can you talk about it?
3: So here's my argument, and let me sort of back up a little bit. When I started out, I had the opportunity to interview a lot of people who were in the military on the days when coups were occurring. And I asked them, how did you choose sides in that moment? And they would say, well, look, either I supported the government or I didn't, but this didn't matter. What they told me is, look, we looked out there and we wanted to avoid a civil war, we wanted to avoid fratricidal conflict, I also wanted to avoid endangering my soldiers, and by the way, I wanted to avoid being on the losing side. So I wanted to back the side that everyone else was going to support And they would say, because I didn't want to be so selfish as to put my own political beliefs above the benefit of the nation. So now the question is, how do you do that? How do you figure out who everyone else is going to support? And what game theorists call the situation where everyone, people may have differing opinions over what is the best path forward, but it's most important for everyone to be on the same side, they call that a coordination game. And in a coordination, what becomes key is information and expectations. If you could convince everyone that one side was going to succeed and its victory was a fait accompli, it would attract support from everyone. And then, in fact, that belief would become true. So now to answer your question, in order to do that, you need to be able to shape information and expectations. And one of the best ways to do that is with a broadcast and the classic way is a radio or television broadcast. It's intuitive when you think about it, but I think the value of your
0: work is that you pointed it out and, and made it understandable. But I, I also think that Max, your work does a lot towards this in particularly highlighting those intrapersonal dynamics. So share with us a little bit about what you've learned about the importance of interpersonal dynamics in, in the coup problem set.
1: In the kind of classical view of the academic literature, Um, A lot of responsibility for coups tends to be ascribed to external elements like, you know, the the end of the Cold War, international pressure, economic factors and so on. But what I've actually found is that intramilitary factors um, tend to serve two purposes. One, they tend to be a cause of coups and two, they tend to be a mediating influence after the coups already occurred. And I'll give maybe two or three examples from West Africa. If you look at um, two countries that those of us around the table are experts in, Ghana and Nigeria, what I found really fascinating is if you look at the inception of military rule in those countries, if you look at the, the early Nigerian military regimes, the people who plotted the coups that put the first military governments in Nigeria in power trained at the Royal Military Ac- um, Academy at Sandhurst in the United Kingdom. Now, Some of their contemporaries in cadet school were from a neighbouring country called Ghana. So what you found is that one month after Nigeria's first military coup, the colleagues of the coup leaders from Sandhurst, their Ghanaian colleagues, one month after staged a second coup in Ghana. And if you look at other parts of the world, you look at um, East Africa, when there were mutinies in East Africa, you find that they were all colleagues too from the King's African Rifles.
3: Max, that's funny, because my work is on what happens during a coup. And there I find that intramilitary factors matter most. And you're saying in the periods before and after, intramilitary factors are very important. So (laughs) our arguments are complementary there. Actually, can I ask you a question while you're here? Did you find much in the way of the use of blood oats?
1: Completely agree. So so those um, intramilitary relationships I mentioned are both um, horizontal and vertical. So you have those strong horizontal relationships between cadet coursemates, between guys who train together as contemporaries, but then it's also vertical, where obviously the, the military is a very um, has lots of reverence for seniors and uh, a unified vertical chain of command. So you find that young cadets are very, very impressionable, not just to each other, but also to their superiors who train them. So they tend to maintain career long. Um, relationships of mentorship and kinship with their instructors.
0: I want to bring Alexis back in because when we talk about coups, the thing that drives me crazy is that every time that there is a coup, that someone in the press says, well, this coup leader got training in the United States, and so isn't there a connection between U.S. training and coups?
3: But before she starts, please, if any of my former students ever hear this, Don't mount a coup, and if you do, please don't blame me. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yes, I think that's a good
0: word to the wise. Max kind of set us up right. right? So in the 66 coup in Nigeria and in the following coup in Ghana, many of those guys went to Sandhurst. Sanogo in Mali was trained in the U.S. Dadis Kamara from Guinea was trained in Germany. There's a great RFI article about the lieutenant who did the failed coup in Gabon and talked about the consequential time that he spent in Cote d'Ivoire in Morocco. So, is there a nexus? How should we think about this?
2: So, I guess I you're right that this is a common refrain and is often the case. Um, I guess I'd have two reactions. The first is that I think to some extent this is a reflection of the way that African militaries run their professional education. So, these are militaries in many cases that rely on foreign training as the primary, you know, it's a clear a leading and sometimes the primary form of professional military education rather than running sort of very closed, you know, very uh, institutionalized professional military education, you know, processes domestically. So in that regard, it shouldn't be surprising that if you picked any set of officers at random out of a uh, especially a Francophone West African military, that they're more than likely to have received some kind of external training outside of the country. So I think it it actually tells us something more about internal military management than it does about coup leaders. Now, that said, I would also say, and my my second observation would be that different countries provide military training for different reasons. So I don't think it's useful analytically to put training in Morocco or Côte d'Ivoire on the same plane as training in the United States. Why is it problematic that a coup leader received training in the United States. Well, I work for Congress. And to some extent, this is problematic in our own policymaking system because Congress tries to emphasize the importance of civilian control of the military in our foreign military training courses. That's actually written into some of the authorities that Congress uh, has enacted to enable foreign military training. Um, And of course, it's a key tenet in our own you know, domestic system of governance, you know, the idea of civilian control of the U.S. military being more or less uh, sacrosanct or at least sort of something that is widely acknowledged across the, the political spectrum. So then if we look at just the coup leaders who were trained in the United States or by the U.S., I mean, I would add a couple of examples to the ones that you noted Um uh, Isaac Zida in Burkina Faso, who sort of carried out an abortive coup and ended up prime minister of the transitional government in 2014. Several of the generals who carried out the the failed coup attempt in Burundi in 2015 had received substantial U.S. training because they had served in high level positions in AMISOM, in Somalia, or in other sort of regional security engagements that the U.S. has supported. Um, so then the question becomes, you know, how, if at all, Uh, might U.S. training curricula need to be adjusted? So
0: I think that the reasons and why the U.S. military selects certain officers and their military, the host government selects certain military officers, is because of their charisma, innate leadership skills, their ambitions, which happen to be pretty good characteristics for coup d'etat. It's not causation, but it's correlation. I want to shift to the last question that I have for today, which is where we started. Do we need to update the way we think about how coups unfold? I mean, is there a scenario in which live streaming or using WhatsApp can, you know, either replace or augment the radio broadcast, uh, can create that public information that Naniha was talking about? Max, let me let me give you the opportunity to, to, to take a bite at this first.
1: Sure. And, um, and I'm kind of going to tackle your question by um, going back to something that Naonihal mentioned earlier on, which is about um, the importance of seizing radio and TV stations um, while a coup has been executed. You Now, if, if we talk about um, the, nin- the heyday of military coups in the 1960s and 1970s and so on, it was much easier for coup plotters back then to seize power and get their message across. Because back then, in many African countries, the state-owned um, radio, radio and TV stations were the only game in town. But you fast forward to the contemporary era that situation doesn't exist anymore. There's a plethora of privately owned TV and radio stations some of which are actually owned by political figures and social media which makes it easier for one, the incumbent regime or two, intramilitary units that oppose the coup to initiate counter broadcasts on non-state media. So I would say that, you know, in terms of the way coups have um, changed, one is that the control of the media is not as conclusive as it once was in prior generations. And secondly, um, some countries have tried to combat the threat of coups by deliberately complicating the chain of command. Um, If if we look at many African countries, what we've learned is that for presidents the the people they should fear are those to whom they entrust their safety so we found that in many countries coups were executed when the coup plotters infiltrated the presidential guards and incited the guards to arrest the president that they were supposed to um protect so how have co- countries tackled that uh, potential scenario so i think um the 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 traditional ways that we looked at coup d'etats where you seize the radio station And you have a very, very senior officer issue um, a coup declaration, which all officers subordinate to him then fall in line and and follow. I think that script is probably becoming outdated. And nowadays, for a coup to um, succeed in, in modern Africa, you probably require a greater degree of concurrence, both within the military chain of command and via the media than we, re- we perhaps required in the past.
2: That's really interesting. I, I'm not sure I have uh, very formed thoughts on this. I think that your question about social media is really interesting because what I do observe is a use of things like Instagram and photos posted on Twitter to prove that, for example, two elites were in the same place at the same time or that one person uh, got a meeting with another very important person uh, I see that playing out in, for example, Congolese politics where when Congolese elites come through Washington, they often then release pictures with the U.S. officials that they've been able to meet with. And that's obviously a signaling mechanism intended to boost their standing in some way.
0: I'm going to turn to Nani Hall for the last words, but a point that Max made about sort of the counter narrative and I was thinking about Erdogan mm-hmm. uh, in the failed coup and I don't remember what he was using, but... He was uh,
3: using FaceTime. Uh, yeah. But what I will say is that he was then able to be put onto regular broadcast television. Okay, interesting. Mm.
2: Patched through. And
3: so I've been tracking some of this issue about social media for a while. And what I've found is that social media matters both here and in protest when it gets picked up by broadcast media. And so during the Arab Spring, when people said, well, it's about Twitter, when you actually looked at it, most of those tweets were in English. And they were actually coming from people in exile. And so people on the streets in Egypt or Tunisia were sending text messages to friends who were out of the country who would then write the tweet in English with that video clip and post it so that people on Al Jazeera and CNN would see it and then broadcast it back into the country. And so there was... You still saw that the critical link here was the mass broadcast media. Here, I have to depart slightly from from Max. I, I don't know if this has slowed down the incidence of coups, but we certainly still see a good number of them, and I have not seen that the dynamics have changed. So So where I, where I disagree with Max was where he was saying, look, you need to have more institutional support and perhaps more popular support. I haven't seen that. I would be willing to believe, though, that perhaps the challenges of governance have been impacted a lot more by social media. One of the things we see is that um, the governments have done very good about yanking the plug on social media. The other thing is that social media penetration is still fairly weak. And so um, when Juan Guaido posted on Twitter, this little video in Venezuela saying, it's time for people to rise up, how many people in the military actually saw that? But everyone did start the day by turning on the radio and listening to the national broadcast. Um, Now, what I have found was that when you have coups where you have liberalized media, that you can sometimes have dissenting voices but what really matters is how far these voices are able to get amplified and compete
0: well on our show we like to bring on the table some of the old chestnuts about how we talk about africa and really kick them around a little bit and stress test them and i thought you know i really appreciate everyone's insights and i think it's a conversation that we'll keep having especially as the world keeps changing so thanks everyone i really appreciate it
2: thank you so much
0: Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.